0: Join us on a journey from Genesis
1: to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. This is Michael Easley in Context, and today in studio, I have the privilege of having Curtis Zachary, a.k.a. CZ, in the studio. Curtis Zachary is a teaching pastor at the Church of the City, a little tiny church here in the Nashville area, right? (laughs) It's the new thing in town, baby. You guys are blowing it up. He's a graduate from Liberty University. What year did you finish Liberty? Uh, 2001. 2001. And then you spent some time at Gateway Seminary in California, and then somehow you found your way to Middle Tennessee.
0: Yeah. Winding road, but here we are, and I love it.
1: Do you miss Southern California?
0: I think every place has a beautiful gift that it offers, and what we say is people make a place, and yep. we really love the people here, and it's been incredible. So we miss some Cali stuff, but Weather. we love being here.
1: <laughs> yeah. How long you been in Nashville area? So
0: we lived here in two iterations, lived here for 10 years before we moved to California. I was a part of a small church plant out there for about three years, and then... Moved back about four and a half years ago, so two different times. The city itself has looked vastly different in both of those iterations. Nashville's grown a ton, and so uh, this time around is a bit different, but we still love it, same people, and, and it's great.
1: My wife and I moved here about 11 years ago, and it's doubled since There you go. Since <laughs> we moved. And it's like, where did all this traffic come from? Uh, you're married to Monique. You have two boys, Noah and Micah. How long yes. have you and Monique been married?
0: It will be 12 years, March 29th. Congratulations. Man, so thankful that she said yes. I still don't get it, but I'm grateful. (laughs) A wise man marries up.
1: A wise man marries up. Well, in our big book cover-to-cover series, we are uh, looking at Ecclesiastes today, one of my favorite texts. Um, I tell the story in the message uh, each year. One of my professors would say, take on something that was challenging. Hmm. And I never liked Ecclesiastes. I would read it and go, what in the world? And so one year, I strapped this on and ended up being a three-year study. Yeah. I couldn't stop. Yeah, that's right. And I (laughs) fell in love with this book. So it'll be interesting to see some of your insights. My uh, daughter, also the executive producer of In Context, Hannah Seymour, said, you got to get CZ and talk about Ecclesiastes. (laughs) So here we are. Here we
0: are. And it's fun. Like you said, I think... I've grown in great affection for what Ecclesiastes represents, not only in the narrative of the Bible, but for us practically in our journey in faith, and and what a gift I really believe it is to and for us.
1: Now you've taught through this at your church. Yeah. So what was the what was the context, the setting, the duration?
0: Yeah. So it was a pretty significant duration of a series. Our pastor Darren was kind of shepherding into a thought of what we would call a search for meaning, and. What's funny about that title of a series and then you read the first few verses of the book, it's almost like completely contradictory, (laughs) right? (laughs) You got a guy who's talking about how everything's meaningless and yet we're saying that we can derive some sense of meaning or purpose from this book. And I think that is what the ultimate outcome is. This is a painting of a picture where we truly do find our sense of meaning and purpose and I think it's very vivid when we understand that the narrative of the Bible speaks to specifically that thing inside of this book. So that was the thought. We didn't go verse by verse through the whole thing, but we covered I forgive
1: it. you. I forgive there you. There you go. Thank <laughs> you. But
0: in our teaching of what we taught, we did verse by verse coverage. Go, okay. I did anyway. Okay, good recovery. And uh, yeah, for me, I think even in topical studies, there's an approach to a topical idea from an expositional process that I think helps to marry those two ideas well. And that's really what this represented for me, too.
1: When you were teaching through it, how did your friends, how did the congregation, how did Monique respond to, you know, this time studying the book?
0: Yeah, I think it's a funny uh, thing for, like you said, many people enter into it with the same set of lenses you did. This is going to be daunting, uh It's messy. It's complicated. Comes across with this air of cynicism and frustration. The guy who's writing is clearly very cynical about a lot of things. And people are kind of wondering, all right, what kind of good stuff are you going to be able to pull Mm. out of this thing? Mm. And I think my wife, uh, anyone who would have been alongside of me in study of that time knows, number one, there's a thread that I believe is woven throughout the narrative of Scripture And that thread is connective to the origin place of God's intention for humanity, which is he desires beyond anything else communion with us. That's all he wanted from us from the very beginning. And any work or things that we do for God come from or after that iteration of his creation Mm -hmm, of us. mm -hmm. And I think if we can have that as a connective place, it helps us to be able to see clearly what we see included in this canonization of the Bible God's intention for us in it. And as I read Ecclesiastes with that set of glasses, it quickly became apparent to me like, God is showing us vividly in the way He is writing. One, our current contemporary condition, the air of cynicism that is currently present in our culture, not only out in the world, but even in our church as we Mm -hmm. perceive uh, who God may or may not be, uh, what that means for our lives, uh, the questioning that we have toward God, how can God be a certain way in light of our world and this environment, even the idea of us who are Participants in this faith walk and have been a part of it for a long time. Many would articulate that they feel dry and tired. And here you see a guy who has lived some life and near the end of his life now expressing these ideas, having seen some things that really call into question uh, the elements of what we would say are the foundations of our faith. So, to answer your question in a very long way, I think. People were uh, excited to mine down on what we had before us to discover these gems of what I believe to be the picture of the gospel in Ecclesiastes.
1: When you look at the book, I know know there's a lot of, you know, Koheleth and the debate about the congregation, the assembly, who he's pulled into this. I happen to believe Solomon wrote it. I know some don't, but some topics, some key themes for you personally as you were unpacking it.
0: Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that speaks to my heart so vividly when I think of Ecclesiastes is kind of that juxtaposition I just painted for us that the world itself is filled of meaningless and vanity-filled pursuits, (laughs) that there are all of these ways that we can look at what is true around us and understand that in and of themselves, there is no end that is fulfilling ultimately to humanity. But yet in light of that reality, we even see uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter nine, it's one of my favorite pictures of the gospel in the Bible. We see a story where this guy who through the whole book is saying meaningless, vanity, it's a vapor. Nothing is good. There is no good wisdom. And then he says in chapter 9, But I did find this one bit of wisdom. And this wisdom is very good. And he tells this story about how there is a city that is under siege. And this city is oppressed, and it is being pressed down. And there is one who comes who is a poor man. And the poor man comes, and by his wisdom, he delivers the city. And it's this picture, I believe, of the writer saying... There is a wisdom in the midst of this meaninglessness, all of the desperation that we find in the brokenness of this world, which Paul talks about in Romans 8. You know, all of creation is groaning and longing to be restored back. But he says that there's one, a poor man who comes. And who's this poor man? Well, we talk about how Jesus forsook his richness to become poor for our sake. You know, uh, We see how Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he echinosed and he poured he himself, himself out. So now you see this poor man, and he says, here's the good wisdom that I found. In the midst of this meaninglessness, in the midst of this brokenness, there is one who comes as the poor man to deliver the city. And that right there to me summarizes the overarching theme of what this book represents. It to me is a picture of the beauty of the gospel in the midst of our broken world.
1: I've always appealed to chapter 2, verse 24, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, it is from the hand of God. And uh, I paraphrase that, enjoy the stuff of life. Yes. We don't want to be ascetics. We don't want to be uh, materialistic to the point where consumerism is our God, but it's okay. Uh, I think when I taught this not long ago I said uh, the reformers used to say I drink this uh, coffee to the glory of God right I eat this meal to the glory of God and what a novel idea to think about enjoy the stuff of life that God has given us and under the sun is sort of a double entendre it can mean the meaningless existential droning of life but it can also mean There's good under the sun. Absolutely. And that's a tension uh, I think Westerners face more than others because we have so much prosperity at our disposal. Exactly. And when you go to developing countries, if you have food and shelter and family and love and laughter, that really is contentment for most of our world, if they have those things.
0: That's right. And I think that those things become the very essence of flourishing. So imagine if all you have at your disposal for the sense of enjoyment is the hope that one time per week, you will be able to sit at a table with your family and enjoy a very, what we would call, simple meal. That, in its essence, becomes worship because now I am experiencing, as a result of God's provision, the ability to connect together and to grow together deeply as a result of that that beautiful thing that we share together. And I think it's in, in line with what you're referencing there. I, I think another theme that, that jumps out at me when it comes to Ecclesiastes is His teaching is not just uh, one which is completely and totally cautionary around what you can give your pursuits to, but I also think that there's some beautiful formational teaching that he gives us that we can even glean from in the way of Jesus. Now, this is the Old Testament, and I think people will at times miss the point of how the gospel is woven through the Old Testament in general, but I think one of the things that's beautiful in chapter 7 he uses this word, especially in the ESV version, he talks about how it's possible to be over-righteous and lead to your destruction. <laughs> and that's an idea that many contemporized followings of Jesus will become confused with because we're going, wait, how can righteousness ever lead to destruction? He's saying, not only are you righteous, but there's a sense that you can be over-righteous and being over over, like, doesn't make any sense to our sensibilities. But what he's talking about is leaning toward what we learn deeply from the teaching of Paul in the New Testament, which is self righteousness becomes an enemy to the gospel. The thought that we, in our own strength, in our own understanding, in our own pursuits, can come to a place of resonance and understanding fulfillment will never, ever, ever lead to that place of connectedness to God. But the righteousness that comes from Christ is given to us. It's this gift. It is graciousness by God that provides this righteousness. So even in the Old Testament, we see a dude formational in his teaching saying, don't think that you and your strength are the one that will be able to attain this connection to God. He always has and always will been the one who brings that provision to us.
1: I think we get tangled up based on our history, how we were churched, unchurched. If we grew up in a mainline church, if we Maybe drifted away. Um, I'm listening to a series of lectures right now by a guy named Philip Carey out of Eastern mm-hmm. University on the history of Christianity in the West. And uh, it is remarkable what I've forgotten. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I, I studied this one time. Yeah, uh, that's it. <laughs> but but you go back to Catholicism and how righteous, as you mentioned righteous, yes, it was justification by faith, but their worst contributed to sure. that. Sure. Sure. The Reformation comes along and says, no, it's Christ's righteousness only. Right. And then you've got the permutations of that, of whether it's Swiss or German or later on uh, in Calvin's time. But it's interesting that you bring up righteousness out of this text because I think that's a concept most Christians never think about. Totally. What does it mean to be righteous before God that we're right in all that we've done? He looks upon us as without sin, without error, We've not only been acquitted and reckoned righteous, he sees us in a way that we don't, I don't think we have a picture of earthly, who's a righteous person. Right. And it's such a foreign concept. So, with that in mind, my my rambling here has a point. When, When you read Ecclesiastes, for let's just call it the average American believer who's reading the Bible, they go, I don't, you know, meaninglessness and under the sun and these repetitions. And I, I've tried it all and, you know, enjoy the wife of your youth, all these admonitions. What do you think he's trying to tell the commoner? Because I, I would argue he's the second wisest person ever to live. Yeah. Christ being the foremost, sure. right? Sure. So he's the second wisest man on the planet. And he's trying to tell us uh, slow people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what? What? what's the wisest man in the world trying to tell us? You know, simple forms, four or five forms.
0: Yeah, and I think what you've remarked upon as it pertains to different iterations that have come from years of study and learning and development of denominationalism and theory and philosophy and theology, all of those things come from human people doing the best that they can to interpret these ideas that are ultimately supernatural and from God. I think Mm -hmm. what the teacher, this wise man, is telling us is the production of this righteousness that you long for only comes as a result of the connectedness to the savior like he is saying to us through all of this teaching that you need to see the meaninglessness of the nature of all that is before you let's call it what it is, and you know and understand that to be true based upon the way that you've interacted with this life. Everything he's telling us is not a surprise to us, whether it's in 2020 or back then. They're all going, we all know, we've all tried, we've all done, we've all been, and we're hoping for this sense of fulfillment, and we know that it leads to dead-end roads. He's going, yes, let me affirm that very clearly for you, but There is a connectedness to a source of life that will produce a flourishing. And I think what you just said about going back to the history makes me think about how two things come to my mind. Number one, in Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9, it's the one verse that many of us will talk about when it comes to what you were saying about. God seeing us through the lenses of perfection because of the work of Christ. You know, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift from God, not from work so that no man can boast. So that's clearly saying you didn't earn it. It's up to God. He's given it graciously through his son. His son performs the one thing that no human ever could do. And because of his righteousness, God now sees me as righteous. Now, of course, the contradictory thought to that is, well, that's great. Sounds really fun to know that that's true, but that then means I get to do whatever I want. Right, right. <laughs> But then what happens for us, sadly, is we leave the conversation there, forgetting that there's a verse right after that one, which says, We are God's workmanship, we're his poema, uh, given by God to do good works which have been set beforehand. Now, these works are not for us to do so that we can maintain our faith. But these works are a production from this connectedness and the flourishing of the rootedness that comes from tapping into Mm -hmm. the source of life. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, we see in the Bible this imagery. I'm the vine. You're the branches. He who abides in me will bear fruit. Apart from me, there's nothing going to happen. Colossians says, uh, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him. And then he ultimately says abounding in thanksgiving. So the same message, which is true in the New Testament, is true in the Old Testament. And I think it's what the teacher is telling us when you talk about righteousness. um, He's talking about how this righteousness comes from a connectedness to God. I think the second thing that comes to my mind, and this came up when you said history. I went to Israel a few months back, and when I was there, I was in a conversation about faith. And the person that was teaching was saying primarily in the West, when we talk about faith, faith or belief is connected to our cerebral process. It's what we think about. And we will explain our faith in those terms. In the East, uh, in Israel, they would think of it differently. They would say that faith or belief is kind of attributed to you as a result of the manifestation of what comes from your life. Now, we here kind of ping pong back and go, wait, because of our great affection for theology and philosophy, we go, well, see, that's the dangerous place because now you're talking about justification of your faith through your work and all that stuff. And they're going, wait, no, it's actually not that complicated. It's almost like you ingest something into your body. You eat it, and it has an effect on your body, and then there's a process that comes with you Mm -hmm. ingesting this thing. So in James chapter 1, when it talks about how... We need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's like a man who looks in the mirror and he walks away and he forgets forgets what he looks like Mm. for us to say that we believe something and not do it. We always teach that here as an encouragement of something that these people didn't know. Like the writer was saying to them, hey, just so you know, it's better for you to do this and not just say you believe this. It's probably better... No, he's reminding them of what is true about what it means to believe anything, period, because they're experiencing this deep suffering. And he's going, you're going to be tempted to just clam up. You're going to be tempted to ball up in the corner. But don't do that. Don't be like the people who so ridiculously would look in the mirror and forget what they look like. Mm -hmm. Remember, it's sensible to know that for you to believe it, it comes out of you. And so. Back to, again, I know you said rambling. I'm the king of rambling. <laughs> <laughs> rambling for me, to answer your question, is certainly I think he's teaching us about righteousness in Ecclesiastes, that the righteousness is a production of the belief in what is truly anchoring our soul. You know, Hebrews 6, when he says that we need to anchor for the soul, I think that's what he's talking about. It's mm-hmm. that very thing.
1: You mentioned Ephesians 2.10. Uh, my friend Ralph White's. we were on the same church staff for many years in D.C., Virginia area, and he says it's the most overlooked, neglected verse in the Bible. (laughs) Absolutely. We we can (laughs) quote eight, maybe eight and nine, but we're never going to quote 10.
0: And the sad thing, just really quickly, but if we ever do quote it, we treat both of those as though they have different purposes. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is the salvation verse. Ephesians 2:10 is when They'll I need work. volunteers for the children's ah, ministry. Okay, okay. <laughs> you better do your work. Come on.
1: So I use other verses to shame them. There you uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I do think it's a challenge for, and again, depending on your background, sure. if you're raised in an Armenian structure where works contribute to your righteousness, justification, salvation, assurance of salvation, any sure. one of those feelings that Christians tend to have, then you're always found wanting. You know, it, I used to often use my two hands as a set of scales and I go. So most of Christianity is if I sin and one hand goes down, then I do some good stuff right. to compensate, right. hoping that I get the scale up. And, you know, it's just it's this back and forth all of life. I sin. I do things. Yeah. I neglect apathy. I do some good things, which is a terrible way of looking at it theologically. But that were created in him. Yeah. For these works. And you, you said it, which were prepared beforehand. That's yeah. a striking notion, striking theology, that these were designed. And then I have to ha- ask the question. Uh, sure. I have an answer, but I have to uh, get yeah, your yeah, opinion. Sure. No, uh, no, what, cool. what are those good works? Because we can codify them just like we can codify, well, that really isn't a sin. Sure. But that is a sin, and yeah. especially if other people do it as a sin. But if I do it, I can justify it. So we're off in in a bit of a rabbit trail, but it's an important rabbit trail, because if justification by faith alone gives me eternal life, that he died in my place Mm. on my behalf instead of me, I appropriate that the means of which grace is given to me, the means of which appropriation I believe, I trust, I put my faith in him to do for me what I can do for myself. Now, how do I then live? Yeah. And what, is this, what do these good works look like? And really, it does segue back into Ecclesiastes, because if it's meaningless, yeah. if it's cynical, right. if I've tried it all, and it doesn't really matter, sure. give me some handles, some real pragmatic, what are some good works people should be thinking about?
0: Yeah, so for me, it goes back to what I've referenced earlier, which is the origin place of all of this story, which is God's intention for humanity from the very beginning. I think has always been and will always be connectedness. It's always been communion with him. Even in the introduction of the first rule, you know, Adam and Eve being restricted from the tree, we naturally look at that as a rule to be followed, so God will be pleased with us. And if He they don't follow that rule, they broke it, and that is what has upset his heart. I think it's a foundational importance to understand It's less about it being a rule to be followed so, but I think it's them being presented with an interruption to the one thing he desires from them, which is communion with them. And so that by itself is fostering this sense of what he desires, connectedness. And when he talks in the New Testament about connectedness and flourishing and fruit, he's saying all of this comes from me through you. So the most important thing is not my cultivation of even determining what those works look like. The most important thing is cultivating whether or not I'm connected to the source of life, which will then produce a thing that really comes in and through me and flourishes and manifests into the world. And the example I kind of give of that is I think when we can think in terms of a tree being planted and properly rooted, what makes that fruit from a tree is not the tree's effort to push out the fruit. It doesn't predetermine what the fruit looks like. It being properly rooted and planted and getting all the nourishment and nutrients that come from that naturally will produce the fruit that it's designed to make. And that fruit will last and that fruit is good and it's it's got merit and it's got richness to it. But if a tree had the possibility to be able to make its own fruit, it would be fake fruit. It would be manufactured fruit. So I think more specifically, what those good works are specifically are... Less important around identification, I think, by name in intention, other than to say there are some things in the New Testament that I think are very clearly outlined as a result of true and pure religion, you know. But I think, too, the most important governance of my life isn't really so much me being able to explain why my work is good or bad. I think the most important governance of my life is. Who and where am I connected to and what does that actually look like in the way that people taste my life? In Galatians 5, you know, the fruit that comes from this spirit of God who prayerfully is leading and guiding every aspect Mm -hmm. of my life.
1: In chapter 11, Ecclesiastes verse 9, I love this portion. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Come on. <laughs> so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body, yeah. because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. So is he being like richly sarcastic on the front end of this saying, go for it, you know, your heart, your, I mean, the words today, impulses and desires, those are words we don't really want to use sure. in our nomenclature uh, of our economy of words, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So right. the motivation, which I think is impossible to know, right. my so. motivation, my, my wife Cindy and I have argued about this for 39 years, and we'll continue to, <laughs> I say there's no such thing as a pre and she sure. says there is. Sure. And so she's wrong and I'm lying, <laughs> but I have a pure motive about that. Uh but but it's it's striking that we can sanctify those impulses uh, you know, when we're young and desires, but know that God's gonna bring you to judgment for all these things. And then he says, Remove grief and anger. Yeah. And I often think about when I was a young man, how angry I could mm-hmm. get so quickly. Yeah. You know, whether it was injustice or being caught. Uh, put away pain from your body. and <laughs> what, But because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Oh, goodness, which is why the book drove me crazy sure. before I spent time in it. Because, wait a minute, so what you're telling me is all this joyful pleasure impulse that I have in the stuff of life is going to be gone, and I'm going to be an old crotchety man, and it's fleeting. Right, right. And uh, right. what is the old, everybody hates me, nobody loves me, I th- think I'll go eat worms, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Bite off the head, suck out the juice, throw away the skins. Everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. I think I'll grow eat worms. So there is this idea that it's fleeting. Sure. So how do we not stay in childhood? C- yeah. C- how do we become men and women of God, not young and impetuous and angry and yeah. driven by pain?
0: You know, it's funny. It's a long question. No, I, I think what's really great about that is, like you said, it's multi layered, multifaceted, so nuanced in every iteration of how you decide to dig into each portion of what you even just read. And there's more in chapter 11 that I think gives us a more robust picture of what he's painting. I think, honestly, the greatest gift of chapter 11 to us is the painting of the importance of a multi generational church. Mm. This to me right here is the very essence of the gift of what a true multi-generational church offers the development of the Christian person. You have here someone saying from that position that you're talking about, whether it could be perceived as crotchety or whatever, you know, a curmudgeon, you got someone going, let me just let you know that this is what I recognize to be true about what I remember in your shoes. I'm just telling you that you will come to a time, whether you know it or not, that you'll realize the things that I'm talking about are true in your life. What I'm saying to you is you can live your life in a way that will take the edge off of some of the things that you're doing, which are really good, by the way. Keep that energy rolling, but just know some of the byproduct of that Mm -hmm. will be this, and it will affect your life, and it will show up in your relationships and what manifests from what you do. And that's where I think chapter 11 to me is really one of the most important chapters, not only in Ecclesiastes, but I think in the formation of the way that we think about church. Mm -hmm. It shows us that there's a valuation of people beyond just what they have to give financially to a church or what they have to give with their strength and energy. I think one of the things that's interesting about the developing nature of the church in America is, if we're not careful, we will see the devaluation of elder voices in our churches
1: continue. Let me interrupt you on that, because um, I would say in the past, I was fairly quick to be critical of 20-somethings and 30-somethings, and in recent years, with uh, no small encouragement from my oldest daughter, Hannah, has been, Dad, you got to help them, not just criticize them. And I think for older people, you know, when I was your age, you know, uh, can be very condescending. Yet I'm seeing, and maybe it's just the young men and women I traffic with, I'm seeing a a hunger for mentoring, for older wisdom. And it really, it's incumbent upon my age group to be a little wiser the way we communicate and yeah. not dismissive, it's not the same world I was raised in. Sure, Technology's changed. Impulses are changed. Uh, motivations are very different than when I was that yeah. age. And yeah. so just granting, it's a different time and place. And had I been born in 1990, mm-hmm. I would be a different person, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's incumbent on the elders, if you will, older men and women, to say have a little grace and mercy toward sure. them. But also to encourage young people to say, give those old people a little slack. That's right. Because they're going to say things that are going to be condescending and not mean it that way, right. and and maybe they haven't thought through it. That's right. And maybe they haven't been around twenties and thirties for a while. So when you talk about multi-generational church, which I totally agree with, sure. I have a saying that the young dismiss the old. The old. Uh, ignore the young and too much is lost in the middle. That's it. Because you say, oh, they don't, they don't know it. They're so young. Right. And young people are like, they're so out of it. They're clueless. right? But I don't know what you're seeing at Church of the City, but w- what I'm seeing, there's a hunger yes. from the younger people yes. toward the older.
0: And I think that that's where, again, this book becomes such a beautiful gift to us because that's the picture that is really painted. The picture that's painted in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes is that middle that gets lost. He's saying... We, if we lean in together, if you can listen to some of the things that I'm saying, I'm acknowledging the great value and what you bring to the table as a young, virile person. But understand that there's formational thought, there's shepherding, there's coaching, there's encouragement that comes from these voices who've lived some life. I think it's interesting. I've met with pretty regularly with a couple of guys who are uh, significantly older than I am, and they have been such a gift to me in so many ways. But on the reciprocation of it, there's been times where I've had to almost encourage the idea that they have value and worth connected to what's going on. And I think it's been a beautiful reciprocation of relationship because they're going, man, we feel like we're, we're kind of past our prime. We don't really have anything to offer of substance. Where I'm saying, you just need to know simply by the fact that you've existed for 71 years on earth. That by itself gives you an inherent set of wisdom that maybe doesn't offer specificity around spiritual things or whatever, but you at least get some built-in credit for that. Let's right. start there. Then on top of that, you're saying that you've been following, pursuing the way of Jesus for 50 years. Like there's got to be some richness that comes from that. Then on top of that, you know, and you kind of just drill down. Right. So I think, like you said, what, what we're seeing even in the life of our church is what you're talking about. There's a hunger and thirst for mentoring to be taught to be shepherded to be guided Um, there's also uh, i think a desire from older folks to say uh, i have something to contribute and let's figure out a way to do that i think where it can be dangerous if we're not careful is the thought of developing momentum toward uh, achieving certain successful metrics around church We think, well, the growth path is completely connected to the youthfulness because, man, we know that they're going to be the ones who grow up into this. So, hey, older folks, you just need to trust us and we'll take over the reins and we'll, you know, and it's almost like it upended from back in the day when I was a kid. It was like you said, there was a disconnection and the older folks would be going. Yeah, I know you don't like any of these songs. I know you don't understand any of the stuff, but you just need to trust us. Like you just stick right. with us and and it's almost like it flipped to where it's going. I know this music is too loud. Well, there there is <laughs> a
1: worship of youth today that in in my sphere yeah. of, you know, different churches and different states, um it's kind of striking and I I don't know about uh, you know, individual churches sure, in great course. detail, but uh, uh anecdotally a number of churches where the older are marginalized. Uh, old guys, they're crotchety, and I don't mean crotchety necessarily in an ornery way. They're just, you know, music is is certainly illustri- always going to be wars about, you know, volume and praise songs and choruses we choose and whatnot. And there's some validity of those things. Sure. But it's more, the you mentioned the life of the church and how, and that, that falls to you and me and others who stand in a pulpit to say, you know, there are wise people in this room that may not drive the car you would like, and they may vote differently, right. and they may live differently, right. and they might be teetotalers, they might drink. Uh, all those things are issues, but can you still associate with right. one another in the body of Christ? And so we're all sinners, we're all limping along. Yeah. And Ecclesiastes seems to be sort of the crescendo of, as as I began, you know, the stuff of life. Enjoy the stuff of life. Enjoy right. the food, the wife of your youth, your children, the right. under the sun, which is most of the time when he uses it is a rather neutral term, but it can mean futility. Sure. That you're, it's under the sun. It's this mundane thing. What was the movie? Groundhog Day. Yeah. Every day he wakes yeah, up yeah, to yeah. the sunny and share song. That would put me over the roof right there. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this monotony to it. Um, yeah. That I think as you get older, what well, really matters, right? You know, did did you hug Monique when you left this morning? Right, did right. you tell her you yeah. loved her twice exactly. today, three times today? Exactly. Did you hug your boys and yeah. tell them, "Man, you are the best in the planet"? And, on. and those things are really the irreducible minimum. That how how do I love Christ? And I go back to the good works, asking the question: Am I glorifying God and helping man? Yes. In this thing yeah I'm a reductionist I got to know something specific yeah so am I glorifying God can God honor this is it good for his name and am I helping people so um, and, and that to me is, is a way of measuring it. it's sure. not the way it's not perfect but to pray for someone's salvation to pray for their health to yeah. pray for their attitude toward their marriage to pray for right. fill in the blank right. and then to come alongside and say man you know I saw the way you treated your wife the other day man, that was just uncalled for. I love you, man. I'm not trying to rat you out, but you need to be the man here, and you need to love her like Christ loved the church. How many people say that to one another? Sure. And that's the under the sun aspect of it, I think, that Solomon is referring to inferentially saying, how are you going to live under the sun? That's right. Because we're all going to die. Yeah. This isn't going to last as long as you think it's going to last. One day you're going to wake up and go, whoa, how did I get to be this age?
0: That's right. And if you're looking at a reductionistic view of Ecclesiastes, to keep it simple. I think it's that. This book brings calibration. It helps all of us to get to the place where those who are young, full of vigor, looking to the future, saying, man, everything is at my fingertips. Those who are older going, this is the end of my life and how do I finish well? This brings calibration to say, enjoy those things as you've said, but also let me help you understand that there is an end for this. But what is all of this? To, to what end does any of these things really resolve? And it's ultimately what I believe to be in the fulfillment of the connectedness to the God of the universe who made us.
1: CZ, a.k.a. Curtis Zachary, teaching pastor at Church of the City. Thanks for hanging out with us some and sharing some of your insights on this great book we call Ecclesiastes. Man, what a gift to be together. It was fun talking with you. Blessings. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.